0: That was beautiful. You all sound good this morning. Uh, I am not to say you don't sound good other mornings, but just this morning in particular, just beautiful. Uh, Well, good to see you all. My name is Reed Kappel, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Latham Campus of Christ Community, and it's a a joy to open God's Word with you uh, together. But before we do, I want to pray for our time as we continue on in worship together. So let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord, in this time, we ask that your spirit would awaken us and enliven us to see and behold the beauty of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we turn to your word, would you give us the ears and eyes to see and hear and to receive from you what you would have for us this day. So Lord, meet us in our worries and our anxieties and our doubts and our fears, our joys and aspirations. And may you be the God who meets us wherever we are. So Lord, may this time truly be honoring to you and edifying to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Within the time span of just three years, uh, Horatio Spafford endured a series of tragedies that, that were enough to fill multiple lifetimes. In, in 1871, he lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. Later that year, Spafford lost all of his properties that he invested in, in real estate, in the great Chicago fire, leaving he and his family very economically vulnerable. Earlier that year, the family had made plans to travel to Europe, and while the the plan was to go later on, the, the trip was paid for, and so they decided to go, even though there was great wreckage back home. But because of the work that demanded his time because of the great Chicago fire, Horatio sent his wife and four daughters ahead of him. But while on their travel across the Atlantic, their ship collided with another vessel, and it sank. Now, fortunately, Anna Spafford, Horatio's wife, survived, but all four of their daughters perished in the wreckage. As Anna uh, got to Europe, she sent a telegram back to Horatio that began with these words, saved alone, informing him of the tragic news. Horatio dropped everything he was doing and traveled to Europe to be reunited with his grieving wife. And as he went across the Atlantic, the very ocean that took the lives of his daughters, he penned these now famous words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, He has taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know if you know the story behind that, but this is the true story behind the inspiration of this great hymn that we just sang. And, and you just have to ask yourself, like, what compels someone To sing a song like this in the midst of great sorrow and tragedy, Not, not even just to think them but to put them to melody to be remembered for decades and for others to sing them. It is the same thing that compelled Mary, the mother of Jesus, to sing her great song, the Magnificat, that we see in the Gospel of Luke. It is the grace of God. The unmerited, unbelievable, amazing grace of God that compels us to sing these kinds of words in the midst of great sorrow and pain. And it is what inspired Mary herself to write these words that I want us to hear and to look at afresh this morning. So if you would, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word from the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we will be looking at Mary's song entitled The Magnificat, starting in verse 46. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46, hear the word of the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, today marks the beginning of of the season of Advent. Uh, Advent is the time of year where followers of Jesus remember and re-enter into the story of our past that that shapes our present and brings hope to our future. It is the story of God entering our world in the person of Jesus. And, And this year, as we enter into Advent, we want to explore the story of the birth of Christ, our Messiah, through this sermon series entitled The First Songs of Christmas. And we're not talking about the songs that crazy people have been playing since November 1st. You know know who you are. but, But we're talking about the songs, the first songs sung and recorded for us in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, we turn our attention to the first song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her song entitled The Magnificat. And this morning, what I want us to see and explore in Mary's song, if there's one idea you take away from us this morning, I hope it's this, is that God's grace makes us sing. God's grace makes us sing. Now, I I believe that to be literally true, but it's also metaphorically true that, that God's grace, when we encounter it, it transforms us, it compels us, it moves us, it never leaves us the same if we have come to truly understand God's unmerited love and favor towards us, not because of what we have done, and in fact, in spite of what we have done to earn His judgment, God's grace compels us to respond. And we see this in the life of Mary, but to understand kind of how Mary got to a place where she could write these words, declaring her praise to God, we have to back up in the story to see what was going on. So if you have your Bibles open, turn to Luke chapter 1, and I want to read for us verses 26 and 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, one thing we have to say like some of us, even if you haven't grown up in church, if this is your first time in church in a long time or for the first time, we're probably at least somewhat familiar with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus around Christmas time. But when we see this story, I want us to understand what is going on in Mary's response. Notice what Gabriel says. God is declaring through Gabriel to Mary that she is favored, that she is the favored one. And this is a very powerful and significant word because what it expresses is the the significant value and worth and beauty and loveliness of the object that is favored. But what's so unique about this word is that it's not about what the person has done to be favored, but rather is what has been done to them. You see, to be the favored one is to be the recipient of someone's grace and love and beauty. It's why Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this passage and the message, he says this, and I think it's really accurate. He says, you're beautiful with God's beauty. What does it mean that Mary is favored? It's that she's beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. I love that. It's a perfect expression. It's kind of like if you ever get complimented for smelling nice because of the perfume or cologne you're wearing, like we tend to say, oh, thank you, which is so strange. Why do we take credit for that? Because that's not your natural aroma, just so you know. Like if you're getting a compliment because of your perfume, you should be thinking Chanel or Calvin. You know, it's not your aroma that someone is so pleasantly admiring. In the same way, Mary is declared favored because of God's favor upon her. She is lovely precisely because God has loved her. But what's really interesting is that this message of grace, and it's so important to understand the order of this, because notice that Mary is declared favored before she does anything for God. Before she responds in obedience, she is declared favored, and this is always the order of how God operates with His people. God always first moves out of love towards His people, and then in response to that love, God's people move towards Him in love and obedience, It is not that we obey, therefore we are accepted and loved, but rather we are loved and accepted, therefore we respond in obedience. And it is this message that troubled Mary. Look with me at verse 29. It says, but she was greatly troubled. That word means to be be shaken to your core. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, when we hear the Christmas story, we tend to think that Mary was shocked by the presence of the angel, which is true, and that's usually the case in biblical stories where the presence of an angel creates great fear and shock. But if we read carefully, it's not what Mary saw that troubled her, it's what she heard. The message is what troubled her. Mary could not comprehend in her mind how she, as an insignificant woman from an insignificant town, could could be spoken to by God, much less called favored in His presence. She could not fathom how the God of highest heaven would look upon her, speak to her, and much less call her favored." The fact that Mary was more troubled and shocked and moved by the message more than the shocking messenger tells of the radical nature of God's grace. And as I was thinking about this, it, reminds, it makes me think of the Geico commercials Stick with me, okay? What I mean is that in on all these commercials, there's something shocking going on that's just absurd and out of left field, but, but like, what's more shocking than playing basketball against a barbershop quartet is how much money you can save by switching to Geico. Like, that's the whole premise of the commercial. Something shocking is going on right before you, what you see, but what's more shocking is the message. In a similar way, <laughs> this is just where my mind goes, people, okay? But in a similar way, Mary, Mary receives, she sees this radical messenger before her, but more shocking than the presence of a glorious messenger of light, namely an angel, she is shocked by the message that she is the recipient of God's grace. And so what this means, when we look at Mary's encounter again, it's not the presence of the angel, the messenger, but it's the radical story of the message that shocks Mary. And what this means for us is that when we encounter God's grace, it will trouble us. It will trouble us. And again, that word trouble, it, it, it doesn't mean that you're in a, a state of, of panic and distress, but there, you're in a place of, of perplexed nature. You can't fathom and comprehend what is going on. Because you see, God's grace is not just a nice thing that, that God does nicely for us to feel nice. God's grace towards us is a radical act Because it's radical because it's contrasted with how high and holy God is and how low and sinful we are. When we understand how holy God is and how broken and sinful we are, his grace towards us is absolutely unbelievable. If you're a follower of Jesus and if you have not ever had that that moment of God's grace just feels incomprehensible... when you've never had this moment of just feeling that grace is unbelievable and shocking, then, then we should ask ourselves, have we come to truly encounter God's grace? Because God's grace, when we encounter it for what it is, it should and it will trouble us. And I say this to not cause panic and for you to question your salvation if you're a follower of Jesus, but rather to illustrate how beautifully scandalous God's grace is towards us that the king of highest heaven would extend his love and forgiveness towards us when we have done nothing to earn it. In fact, what we have done is earned his judgment and condemnation. When we know that truth, God's grace should trouble us. And so a question we should ask ourselves is this, when was the last time God's grace troubled us? When was the last time you reflected upon the fact that God has loved you, has forgiven you, has accepted you, and brought you into His family, not by what you have done, but by what He has done for you? Do we know the depth of our lowliness and the greatness of God's holiness in such a way that the idea of Him showing favor to us is incomprehensible?" Do we live every day with this this realization that, that the breath in our lungs, the sight in our eyes, the sound in our ears, and the taste in our tongues is all a grace to us by God? Do we believe it when we sing in that song, Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Do we sing that with conviction and boldness, knowing the radical nature of God's grace? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus... In some ways, it's possible that this very idea is actually the thing that has kept you from Jesus, that that you see, you understand very acutely how broken and messed up you are. You feel that that you could never be good enough to be loved by God, accepted by Him, and that it has pushed you away, that you're saying to yourself, like, read, if you knew who I was or what I've been through or what I've done, you would understand how far I am from God's grace. Or perhaps what's kept you is that you see the Christian faith as nothing but a, a whole list of rules that we are to adhere to and obey, and as long as we kind of have good things that way or bad, then we're fine, but you just see it as kind of pointless and worthless. And what I would say is that if you identify with either of those, you're closer to understanding grace than you might even realize. Because the good news of God's grace towards us is this: is that on your worst day, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace and on your best day, you're not beyond the need of God's grace. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel that Mary is hearing of God's grace and favor towards her. When we encounter God's grace, it should trouble us. But as we continue on and see Mary's encounter, we see that it does even more than just trouble us in the best of ways. After the angel tells Mary that she will conceive and bear a son miraculously, and it will be the son of God, Mary responds with these words in verse 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now notice that sounds nice. I mean what Mary's saying, but you you have to we have to understand the cost of what Mary is enduring. We, we tend to sanitize the Christmas story. It's like, baby Jesus in a manger and it's wonderful and it's so nice and frankincense, I don't know what it is, but it's, but it's probably a nice gift. But we tend to sanitize the Christmas story and we don't understand what God is telling Mary right now, behold, you will bear a son. God has placed Mary in a very precarious, vulnerable and dangerous place. Because she is now, she is an unmarried woman. Yes, she, she's engaged, but she is a young teenager now finding herself pregnant And she is now probably thinking that her fiance is going to leave her knowing that she's pregnant, which was very customary in that time. It was also not uncommon for a pregnant woman outside of marriage to be put to death because of the shame that she would bring upon her family and the community. And so so Mary, to declare, behold, I am a servant of the Lord, this is something powerful. You have to understand the cost that she is facing. So sure, Mary is favored by God. But God's favor upon her is not doing her any favors, so to speak. You know, like she is now in a more dangerous place and more susceptible to rejection and shame and punishment. And yet she declares that she is a servant of the Lord. Notice how she responds, not out of a sense of obligation, like, well, I guess what other option do I have? Like, that's not what's recorded for us, but rather behold, I am a servant of the Lord. And she responds with joy. And we know that because of the, the use of this word behold. We, we don't use the word behold in most co- like, c- communication today. Like, behold, I love brunch. Like, we don't, we don't do that. I mean, you can, I guess. But, but this way of, of using this word behold, it's a way of bringing attention to something you want people to pay attention to. You're wanting to spotlight it. I was trying to think of a, kind of a modern version of this. It's like if you're sending a message, a text message, if you have an iPhone, maybe you use the effects features. It's a way of kind of communicating, like, behold, like, I'm going to use lasers to communicate how important this is. This is kind of what Mary is doing. It's, a, it's an old Geico commercial and an iPhone message. So that, that's what's going on here. But, but really what Mary's trying to say is this is important as she identifies as a servant, she's saying something fundamentally about how she views herself. That first and foremost, Mary is a servant of the Lord. This is not a facet, this is not a part of her identity, this is not a hobby, this is who she is at her core. A humble servant of the Lord. And if I may, just as a side note, if I may, I think us as Protestants, we've we've done a very bad job, I think historically, of responding to kind of the Catholic view of Mary. While I do believe, I don't think we should venerate Mary as divine, we should also guard against the other error of just kind of dismissing her, disregarding her, downplaying her. Because this woman is a remarkable woman of faith who displays for us what it means to be devoted to God, even knowing what it would cost her. And so Mary absolutely should be a woman we remember, we celebrate, we emulate, and model our lives after. Because she shows us that God's grace, when we encounter it, yes, it troubles us, and yes, it humbles us. When we encounter God's grace, it will humble us. That's, that's the second thing we see in the life of Mary. Mary is so blown away by God's grace that, yes, it shakes her to her core, but it places her in a position of true humility. And she's already humble. I mean, she is a, a poor woman. She is a, a teenage, uh, a pregnant woman now, but she still sees the fact that is favored by God. She doesn't see this as now uh, an opportunity to see herself as entitled or elite, but rather she sees that what it means to truly be humbled and empowered by God is to have true strength. Look with me at verses 51 and 52 of Mary's song. "'He has shown strength with his arm. "'He has scattered the proud "'and the thoughts of their hearts. "'He has brought down the mighty from their thrones "'and exalted those of humble estate.'" Again, Mary's newfound status as the favored one, as the recipient of God's grace, doesn't lead her to kind of puff herself up and think she's amazing, but rather she sees that this status leads her to live a life of humble service for the good of others. And that's what her whole life is marked by, raising the Messiah, the Son of God, Mary's whole life and identity is now reoriented around being a humble servant of the Lord who uses her power from a position of being under people, not over people. In in other words, what this means is that Mary sees the grace of God as that which empowers her to love, live, and lead her life, to build others up from below, not control and dictate them from above. And so as we see Mary encountering God's grace and it humbling her, Well, the the question we should ask ourselves when we encounter God's grace is this. Where are we using power over instead of power under? Do we understand that God's grace doesn't put us in a state of entitlement, thinking that we're amazing, but it actually properly humbles us in a way where we understand that power is to be served from a position beneath people, lifting them up, not over them, putting them down. Because here's the thing, all of us in this room, all of us have power to some degree. Some of varying degrees, for sure, but the reality is that all of us have a power that is given to us by God to be stewarded for the good of others. And so do we see God's grace as that which empowers us and enables us to serve and have this identity as a humble servant? So so think about it, if, if you work in the marketplace, if you're an employee or an employer, do you view, do you see your power and position to develop and empower your colleagues, your your employer, your employee, your your clients, or do you see your power and position as a way to kind of keep people beneath you and to prevent them from climbing over you so that you have your place in the pecking order? If you're a parent, do you steward your power as a parent to wisely lead your children to make wise decisions to guide them, or do you find yourself defaulting to kind of a because-I-said-so parenting style or a not-right-now parenting style? That one's for me, just so you know. I I put that one in because that's my default parenting method. Not right now, because I said so. Do we operate with an understanding of how power is meant to build others up? If you're a man or if you're a young boy, do you see your power and strength as something that should be wielded to, to protect and to defend, to cherish, to lift up and value the women in your life? Or do you see your position of of strength and power as as being superior and dominant over women to manipulate them in some way? Do we understand what power is meant to do to us? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you see your power as something given to God, by God, to you to serve others, to share the good news of Jesus? Or do you see it as putting yourself in a place of of being morally superior to others and self-righteous? I think this is something we need to really give attention to. And, and uh, recently I've been reading a book called Jesus Outside the Lines by Scott Sauls. It's a f- phenomenal book. I would recommend it to you. And, and even if you're not a Christian, I would commend it to you because he, he, he responds to some of the perverted versions of Christianity that have been distorted, that aren't an accurate representation of Christianity. And so it's possible that the Christianity you object to or the Jesus you walked away from is not the true Jesus. But he says this, Saul says this, in talking about what true power looks like, he says, Christianity flourishes most as a life-giving minority not as a powerful majority it is through subversive countercultural acts of love justice and service for the common good that christianity has always gained the most ground this is kind of the picture of how we as as people who have encountered the grace of god should now view and understand our power our position and privilege in all places to serve and use our power from under not from over This is what happens when we encounter God's grace, but as we continue on, we find yet again one more thing that God's grace does in our lives. Look with me back at verse 39 and 40. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, you would think that Mary being in the very culturally shameful position she's in now as a pregnant woman outside of marriage that she'd kind of keep quiet this reality that she's pregnant but you get the sense that she can't wait to reveal this news and to let Elizabeth know that she is she is pregnant and she is carrying the son of God and as the two of them have this kind of powerful moment it's really beautiful as the text shows us they find themselves in this moment they are they are find themselves written into the story of God's redemption that they are seeing in their midst the fulfillment of God's promise that he declared to their forefathers through Abraham that through the line of David would come the Messiah to be the savior and rescuer of the world. And as they're delighting in this and seeing themselves in God's story in this moment, you you almost feel just like a Broadway musical, a song is about to break out. And that's exactly what happens as Mary leads into what we now know as the Magnificat, which is just the Latin word for magnify. And we read these words in verses 46 through 49. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So far from being motivated out of a sense of religious obligation to have to share this news and to declare it, you get the sense that Mary cannot contain her joy in what God has said to her. She responds almost with this knee-jerk reaction of singing. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to love singing in order to love Jesus, but, but what it does mean is that we cannot encounter God's grace without being moved and transformed in some way. When we encounter God's grace, it will move us. It will move us. Yes, perhaps, and hopefully in, in, in singing for sure, but, but with the bigger picture here that is God's grace leads us and moves us and transforms us. And so, yes, there is something to be said about, about God's people gathering as one body with one voice, singing to our one true God who has made us one with him. But the bigger picture here is that when God's grace enters our life, it moves us. That when we encounter God's grace, we now live our lives in such a way that nothing can ever be the same. Everything has been radically transformed because of God's grace. And so let me ask us this question. As we think about encountering God's grace, how are our lives different because of God's grace towards us? How do we live? How has it impacted? How has it moved us? Do we see the way in which we love differently? Do we love with a greater compassion because of Jesus' great compassion towards us? Do do we serve in a humble way towards those around us, even those who are hard to love, because of God's great, humble posture of entering into our world through Jesus to live and die in our place? Do we we have the capability of, of lamenting and feeling the pains of others as if their pains are our own, because in Jesus, He became our pains and did something about it. Do we understand that that we are to now live in light of God's grace, that we should refrain from immoral and unethical and, and unjust forms of work and consumption and entertainment? not out of a sense of religious obligation, but because we now serve a king who is the prince of peace, who is the judge of all earth, who is the holy one, who longs to see all broken things restored and made new. Does God's grace move us in these ways? And and, and again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wanna ask you this question. Isn't what I just described, living a life of greater compassion, living a life of greater humility and service, living a life of greater ethical conviction, care for others, isn't that the life you long for? Isn't that the life you're wanting to have your life marked by? Aren't you tired of trying to be good enough on your own and failing over and over again? Don't don't you get so tired of the hollow promises of our culture's version of the good life that so often overpromises and underdelivers? Don't you get the sense deep within your bones that you inhabit a world that is filled with as C.S. Lewis says, filled with the scent of a flower that you have not found, the echo of a song you have not heard, news from a country you have never yet visited? Don't you want to wake up and realize that God's grace is a truth that is greater than what you can imagine and is actually closer than what you could ever hope for? This is the truth of God's grace and what it does to us. God's grace, when we encounter it, it troubles us. It shakes us because of how radically, scandalously beautiful it is. God's grace, it it moves us and compels us. It puts us in a position of humble servitude towards others. This is what we learn in this first song of Christmas. You see, just as Horatio Spafford penned these famous words of the hymn that we just sang, in the midst of great pain and sorrow, Mary was able to do the same thing. Knowing that the path ahead of her was fraught with with rejection and pain and shame and difficulty, she moved forward anyway. And what I want to do, just when we hear this story of grace, I want to invite our worship team up uh, to lead us in song. I, I think it's just so appropriate for us as we hear the message of God's grace for us to respond in singing, just as Mary did. Because God's grace, when we encounter it, it should lead us to sing. And as we do, as, as we respond in singing to God's grace, this is what I hope for, is that we would know the cost of God's grace towards us, just as Mary did. That we would be able, be able to identify with this amazing woman of faith as the one who would give birth to the giver of life himself, as the the one who would mend the wounds of the Messiah whose wounds would heal us, as the one who raised the child who himself would be raised from the dead, as the one who gave up her child, who would bear the sins of the world. Mary knew the cost of God's grace towards her, But do we understand it? When we know the grace of God towards us, it makes us want to sing and respond. And so I invite you to stand as we continue to respond and worship to the grace of God, declaring the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus. Let us sing together.